Hey friends, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. Well, today we're going to be talking about a common saying that you will hear us say here at Evangel and what it means for our lives today. take a moment before we jump into our message to acknowledge that this weekend that we are filming is Remembrance Day. And Remembrance Day is a chance for us to pause, to reflect, to be thankful uh, for those who have sacrificed for our freedoms that we get to enjoy today, and to say thank you to those who are currently serving to continue to maintain that freedom that we have here in Canada. Uh, that sacrifice is one that is profound. It's a sacrifice uh, that mimics what God says in his word, that there's no greater love than one who lays down their life for their friends. And so we just wanna acknowledge that on this Remembrance Day um, and just take a moment to reflect, to remember, to say thank you, uh, and to look forward to the freedoms that we continue to have today. So before we jump in, uh, I'm gonna quickly just pray. Well, God, we thank you so much. Uh, that you gave the model of sacrifice of laying your life down. And God, we thank you for those service men and women who have already made that sacrifice uh, so that we can have our freedoms today. And for those who are currently serving God and those who are currently walking out that sacrifice uh, and serving to maintain the freedoms that we have today. God, we thank you that we get to worship you freely. We thank you for the sacrifice that allows us to live here and to uh, do all that we do. God, I pray for uh, incredible protection over our servicemen and women. I pray for great wisdom and discernment in how to walk out uh, this calling that they have. God, I pray that you would continue to walk with each one of them, that you would reveal yourself to them. And God, that we would take a moment now to just pause and reflect on that sacrifice and what it means for us, what it means for our country. So God, we thank you. We thank you for those people. I pray that you would uh, just continue to surround them with your love, surround them with your protection today. God, we love you and we thank you and we pray this in your name, amen. Amen, thank you friends for taking a moment uh, to remember with us. We're gonna jump into our sermon today. Well friends, if I haven't met you before, my name is Marcus and I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel. And if you have ever walked into our foyer in the past uh, year and a half-ish, you would have seen one of our big declarative signs that we have in our foyer. Now, if you're exclusively part of our online uh, community here, uh, we wanna encourage you, like come see our foyer if you can. Uh, we have a sign in there that says, welcome home. It's like this big sign, it's in our foyer, it's very hard to miss. Um, and we put this up during COVID COVID. We had a little bit of a moment that we were able to kind of revitalize our space and refresh our foyer. And that was one of the things that we wanted to refresh was to put up a sign that said, welcome home, because we want people to know what we're about here at Evangel. And so we decided that this would be one of the feelings that we want people to have as they step into our building, that feeling of coming home, that feeling of familiarity, of comfort, um, of being able to let your hair down, of coming as you are, and that's kind of the feeling that we wanted to have. And so we put it up as a sign to remind us and to hopefully uh, indicate that to people that come in our doors. Now, I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor. Um, and so like when I say I grew up in church, I literally mean 
that I grew up in church. And I've always felt kind of a sense of comfort, a sense of home within the walls of a church. It's amazing. I've gone all across the world and as people gather together in church in different expressions, it always feels kind of familiar, almost like home. But I know that for some, the threshold of our doors is a scary one. It's one that doesn't have those feelings of familiarity, of comfort, of um, home, but it's a feeling of discomfort, a feeling of maybe fear, a feeling of maybe confusion or, or even um, like challenge of walking over that threshold. You know, when I was in college, I was out for breakfast with a friend and as I was talking with them, I felt like I wanted to invite them to church. You know, I felt like that was what the spirit was leading me to do. And so I did. I invited them to church. I said, hey, I'd love for you to come with me. And when I asked them to come with me, they looked at me with a mingled sense of fear and a panic. And you could see it in their eyes. And they said to me, if I were to walk into your church, I would burst into flames. And I remember that sentence forever changing me because my heart broke and my friends feeling toward not just the four walls of a building, uh, but to faith and faith community and to even, I think, how Jesus sees them. Because my, feel, my friend didn't have these feelings to wall, literal physical walls, but to the people within it. And, and though my contribution may be small, I endeavored in that moment after that conversation to do my very best for people to feel like they're coming home when they come to church. People from different lifestyles, people from different backgrounds, people with different uh, ways of coming into church that they would feel that sense of home. Because that feeling of condemnation, that feeling of shame, uh, that feeling of being at the very least an outsider and at the very worst being condemned to like fire if they were to step in the doors of our church is I don't think the intention that Jesus had for his bride, for his church, for his people and the community in it. Now, there may be some of you saying, well, that's not who we are. That's not how we treat others. And while that is largely true, while, while that's never, I think, our endeavor to hurt other people, I think in some way, the Big C Church has communicated that message, that there are some people who are not welcome, that there are some people who are outsiders. And while it may have been intentional, un unintentional, and to be fair, sometimes it hasn't, I think it's up to us to redefine what uh, people perceive church and God's church and his bride and his people to be so that people can feel like church again is a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, to receive his love and look more and more like him each day. We're continuing our series on the ancestry of Jesus. And when I look at this lineage, when I look at the lineage found in Matthew, I see that much of the people in these stories started out very much as the last and the least that they were kind of this group of imperfect, broken people that were really destined for anything but God's plan. And yet in, in God's mercy and his grace, he chose to use them to accomplish his purpose and, and, and to redefine their stories. And so when I had that conversation with my friend, they felt small, they felt marginalized. My friend felt like an outsider looking into the walls of church. What the church should be is a place where all feel welcome, where all feel like they are coming home because they've encountered the one who is our home, who is our safest place. That's Jesus, the one who changes everything, who invites people into a knowledge and relationship of safety with him. And I wish I could go back to that conversation and do it a little bit better. 
I wish I could have told them that God takes great pride in using those who are considered to be the last and the least, who are marginalized, who are on the fringes, to accomplish his purposes. And that's kind of our main thing for today, that God takes great pride in using the last and the least to accomplish his purposes. Because today we're looking at the story of somebody who I think history has failed in the way that they have passed down their story. Who was, uh, in society's standard, the last and the least and yet somebody who God had great purpose for. So today we're gonna to be turning to the story of Rahab, which is found in Joshua chapter two. But before we jump into God's word, let's pray. Well, God, we thank you that you redefine our stories. God, we thank you that we're not shackled to our past, but that you give us a new hope and a new future today. And so God, I pray that as we see uh, people around us, as we interact with other people, that we would uh, speak of them, that we would know of them in a way that uh, sees them the way that you do. God, I pray that we would know that our past doesn't exclude us, but that you include us by your grace and your mercy today. And so God, as we jump into your word today, I pray that we would uh, hear with ears open and hearts ready, that it wouldn't be my words that are heard today, but that it would be yours that speak to us. God, we thank you that you can speak to us and that you are still speaking to us even over an online stream. God, we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, friends, as we turn into God's word, into Joshua chapter two, if you find yourself without a Bible, we would love to give you one. If you live in our region here in Powell River, uh, you're able to get one in the mail. If you just fill out a form at myevangel.church forward slash Bible. Um, but if you want a digital copy, you can always go to the App Store or the Google Play Store and search Y-O-U version, all as one word, and it will give you a Bible to download there as well. So you can even pause right now, uh, download that Bible and jump in to Joshua chapter two, Verse one, this is what it says. The Joshua son of Nun secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove saying, go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed there. Well, as I was researching on the life of Rahab, I was shocked when I was reading the commentaries uh, about the story of Rahab this week because it seems like a lot of commentators don't really know what to do with the story of Rahab. Um, it's full of like theological, moral, ethical challenges, um, maybe even ambiguity around those things. And some commentators wanted to ignore that scripture mentions Rahab was a prostitute by saying that she was simply an innkeeper. Um, but when we look at the other instances of this word being used uh, in Joshua 2.1, we see that indeed she was a prostitute, that this is what life had handed to her in this time. But there seems to be a little bit of a discomfort with Rahab's story. And to be honest, many mainstream commentators are really not kind to women in the Bible. And in particular, I think they're not very kind to Rahab's story. You know, one of them that I was reading called her a shady lady. Another suggested that we should be appalled at her harlotry and lying um, without any mention of anything else that she did by kind of categorizing her identity as those two things. And, you know, another suggested that she may have possessed one trait of a godly woman, but was somehow deficient in the rest. And I think this categorization doesn't necessarily happen with other characters in the Bible um, that had moments or lifestyles that were sinful, like David, uh, who committed adultery and then murder to cover up his infidelity. But instead, they focus on, on David being a man after God's own heart, which he is. But he was a man after God's heart in spite of his failures. 
You know, there's no mention of Abraham who loaned his wife to Pharaoh on multiple occasions. They praise his faith. And it was indeed that he stepped out in faith and are credit to him as righteousness. But there seems to be kind of this vilification of or hesitancy with Rahab's story. You know, one commentator suggested that the lifestyle of being a prostitute was one that she had chosen. And I think it would be very far of a stretch to assume that she chose this lifestyle that she chose to be in a position where she was used and abused, especially in a culture that had already a low, low view of women, that they weren't just like second-class citizens, but that they were uh, not even really citizens at all. And so there's this idea that, you know, somehow she chose this lifestyle, but I can't imagine that she would have grown up thinking that that would be her life. You know, I think that it's more likely that she had been handed that lifestyle by a power dynamic or, or a person. Uh, in the ancient world, for instance, if you couldn't pay a debt, uh, oftentimes what the pagan world would do is they would sell their daughter as a prostitute in order to pay for that. And so I can't imagine that this would be something that she chose. And I think to suggest that would be um, incredibly damaging. And I think this is part of what history has failed Rahab in. Because there seems to be this vilification of her hesitancy with her story. And I think history has failed Rahab uh, in how it recounts her life. And I think that it needs to be re-examined because for Rahab, everything was against her. It wasn't that she chose this, but she was a Canaanite, she was a woman, and she was a prostitute. And this was kind of a triple threat for her being marginalized in the ancient world. Because God takes great pride in using those people who are considered to be the last and the least for his purposes. And so someone like Rahab, who, who was overlooked, who was triply margin, marginalized, who wasn't even an Israelite by birth, and yet, and yet someone who, is, who uh, was one of four women explicitly mentioned in the lineage of Jesus, who was part of the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 that commends uh, people of the Bible for their acts of faith. In James, uh, James suggests that she was somebody who lived by active faith, which is like the true uh, expression of our faith in Jesus. And so if you're think sitting here today and thinking that the odds of your past are stacked against you, I want to encourage you that nothing that you have done and nothing that has been done to you can ever exclude you, not only from God's love, but from his purpose, from his restoration, and his uh, purpose for your life because God loves you and he even likes you in spite of your past, in spite of what, those, what other people have done to you, that none of that can exclude you from God's love today because God is in the business of transforming brokenness to wholeness. God is in the business of bringing light to darkness and he can do the same thing for your story too. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this when it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed and the new has come. Friends, there is nothing that precludes you from God's love, his purpose, or his plan for your life. Because when you are in him, you are a new creation. And this is both a grace and a work of the spirit to renew us. Because God doesn't see you by your past. He sees you as a new creation in him. But now, I, I don't know about you, but, but I can be easily forgetful. And I can eas so easily forget as I journey in faith. And I think the longer, particularly, that I journey in faith, 
how easy it is to fall into judgmentalism with those who are new in faith or exploring faith. And I think this is unfortunately why Rahab has been so misrepresented in this story. Because it is easy for those of us who are mature in faith to forget the darkness that we have been saved from. To those of us who are journeying in faith, we need to remember to see people as a new creation rather than an old one. To see somebody who is renewed, to see somebody who God has regenerated into a new person. Because friends, how we view other people, especially those I think who are new in faith or exploring faith matters. It really does matter because how we view them will determine how we talk about their story, how we journey in faith with them, how we treat them, how we speak to them, because it will be either that we will reinforce the truth of God's love in their life, or it means that we will continue to keep them shackled to their past. And so just like uh, history has kind of failed Rahab's story by speaking about her in a way uh, that wasn't seeing her as a new creation, I think we need to uh, keep in mind that we can so easily do the same thing as we kind of journey in faith and simply forget or, or be so far away from our old self that uh, we can forget what we've been saved from. Because God takes great pride in using the last and the least to accomplish his purpose, even those who are still kind of figuring out this journey of faith. A commentator named Lisa Pello says, our past is never good enough to earn God's salvation, nor shocking enough to keep us from it. What a great quote that our past was never good enough to earn God's salvation, nor was it shocking enough to keep us from it. And that kind of lends us on an even playing field where we don't have you know, an ability to boast in who we have been, but we get to boast in who we are in Christ, recognizing that all people are made new in him. Well, let's jump back into Rahab's story in uh, verse two to seven. It says, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, and he said, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. Their men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as they left to pursue them, the city gate was shut. Now, this is where some of the challenges of this story come in, uh, because when we read this passage, it can be very easy to get stuck on one particular spot. Because the king had sent word to Rahab to hand over the spies that Joshua had sent uh, to spy out Jericho as they were commanded by God to take over that city. But Rahab chooses instead to lie in order to protect the spies. And it's very interesting how scripture kind of tackles this moment. Because we know one of those Ten Commandments, do, thou shalt not lie. And yet here we see it happening by Rahab. And, you know, by and large, it should be something that's condemned. And yet it's very interesting how scripture kind of handles it because it neither affirms it nor does it deny it, but it simply just reports that it happens. 
And I find this very fascinating because commentators, again, in their discomfort with the challenges of this story, kind of try to find a myriad of ways to grapple with it. You know, some condemn the lie and, you know, attribute that to Rahab's identity. Others try to explain it by saying that this is done in kind of a militaristic setting, so the lie is permissible because it shows that Rahab is choosing uh, in a, like a military way to stand with the Israelites and against the Canaanites uh, in the impending battle that they were about to face. But when we look at scripture, um, there's maybe whispers of those theories, but there is a general sense of kind of ambiguity with it. Like it's very unclear, it doesn't really take a stance. And so what does that mean? Like, what does that mean for us? Well, does it mean that the Bible condones lying? Of course not. Now again, this is speculation, but I can imagine that the spies would have been protected in some way by God's provision if Rahab had told the truth. And, and that would have happened because God had a purpose to bring the Israelites into the promised land of which Jericho was kind of the entrance to. But what I see here and in other parts of Rahab's story is that God rewards even imperfect steps of faith. Because Rahab was a Canaanite. You know, she wouldn't have had the commandments that had been passed down to Moses and the people of Israel. She wouldn't have had the theological or, or moral or ethical framework of how God's people live. And yet she decided to take this imperfect step of faith toward God by protecting his people from what she thought was their impending death. And so it's this like step of faith that's imperfect, that's maybe a little uninformed, but that's still a step of faith. David Guzik says, Rahab's lie is not justified, but it does show courage. Consider that she was a pagan sinner in a city and culture wholly given to, over to the worship of false gods and immorality with no previous contact with the word of God or the things of God. What is your excuse? Ouch. What is your excuse? It's a little bit of a sharp word, I think, by, by David Guzik, but it paints the picture that uh, God, God does honor imperfect steps of faith, particularly by those who are new in faith, those who don't know yet the ways of God. And in fact, scripture mentions this imperfect act of faith, not just once, but twice. Uh, again, not condoning her lying, but commending her faith. James 2.25 says, In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different way, route? And Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. And we see that her faith is commended. And we don't see that scripture is saying, like, abandon the commands of God. Like, of course, we are to walk by that standard of truth. But God doesn't call us to take perfect steps of faith. He just calls us to take one. He calls us to step out. Now, the, again, this doesn't mean that we throw out the truth of scripture, that we aren't held to that standard. But I think it does mean that there is grace extended when we try to step out in faith and do it imperfectly especially with those who are still learning the ways of Jesus. So if you're journeying in faith today, or, or even if you're exploring faith and, and wanting to kind of take that next step of faith, don't get held up by the perfect step. There isn't one. You know, our journey of faith isn't about perfection, but it's about progress. And we see this in Rahab's story, because by God's mercy and his grace, he can use an imperfect step of faith to accomplish his purposes. So friends, be thoughtful about your journey of faith. Be thoughtful about your next step to see if it lines with scripture. But also friends, 
I want us to be willing to step out and fail. To step out and do it imperfectly and maybe fail because failure isn't the end of our journey of faith, but it's rather a chance to grow uh, and grow deeper in the ways of Jesus if we let it shape us. And let's not begrudge others' imperfect steps of faith either. Let's have grace for those who are making imperfect steps, who maybe step out and try and, and don't quite hit the mark. Because I'm sure as Rahab, later in the story, and I'm going to give it away, was grafted into the people of Israel, that she would have eventually realized her mistake. She would have realized her mistake in lying. But I think that would have come as she journeyed in progress over perfection. So I think some of us today need to be freed from, from the grip of perfection in our lives. That we have placed some standard of expectation of perfection on us. And I think we need to be freed of that today. To realize that there is much more value in the progress over perfection when we journey in faith and discipleship. But I think on the other side of the same coin, I think some of us need to free others from the expectation of perfect steps of faith that we've placed on them, that we've maybe uh, unfairly like placed on them where whether they don't have a framework for the ways of God or if they're new or even if they've stepped out and failed, that we've sometimes, I think, placed these structures on people that, uh, that, they should have an that they should have a perfect step of faith. And so I think some of us today need to free somebody else from the uh, unfair expectation of perfection. Because there will be a time, I'm sure, in those moments to bring correction. But I think that we need to do it gently. And most importantly, we need to do it in relationship with people. That we can't just have these moments of correction without walking in relationship with them. We see that Jesus does this so well, recognizing that we're all on our journey of progress over perfection. It may challenge you. There may be ambiguity like in our story where it seems a little unclear or where we're not quite sure how to do that or where it seems like there's this challenge. But friends, I want us to have faith in God that he can use imperfect steps to accomplish his purpose because he can. And so let's take those imperfect steps today and journey in discipleship and a journey in faith together. Let's continue on in Rahab's story in Joshua chapter two, verses eight to 16. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For you have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the, the two Amorite kings who you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all those who belong to you, or belong to them, and save us from death. The men answered her, we will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then she let them down by a rope through the windows, and she lived in a house that was built in the wall of the city. Go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you, she said to them. Hide there for three days until they return. Afterward, go your way. Well, we see here that there are two declarations of faith made by Rahab. 
One, I know that the Lord has given you this land, which is kind of the framework in, in what jo the story of Joshua is, is taking over the promised land. And so she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. I know that his promises are there. And then there's one that's more explicit. She says, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And so we see that this declaration of faith by Rahab changes everything for her. Because we see in the story that Rahab's faith was in word and in action. And as a result, not only herself, but her family is saved from the impending destruction of Jericho. And she was the only one. She was the only one in Jericho who turned to the Lord. That she had that act of faith, that declaration, she made it alone. And yet God honored that. She, he honored that act of faith. And you know, I find this story uh, is so fascinating because at first it seems incredibly unnecessary. It seems almost like an interruption to kind of the flow of the story in Joshua. Because Joshua starts with the command to be strong and courageous, to take the promised land, to not mingle with any foreigners as it would lead the Israelites to idolatry. And so Joshua is kind of this story of how that unfolds and, and how that all takes place. And yet after chapter one, there seems to be this like, it seems like the channel on the TV has somehow changed without us knowing. And then this like story of Rahab is kind of punctuated in the middle of it before then jumping back to the narrative of Joshua taking the promised land. But friends, this story isn't happenstance at all because it shows God, God's great desire to go to great lengths to save even one person from judgment. One person who was invisible in her culture, of low and insignificant status, who's abused by those around her, that maybe was overlooked by everybody except God. Everybody except God. And he goes to great lengths to even interrupt the story of the promised land that was happening over generations so that he could save even just one person. David Guzik comments on this by saying, the reconnaissance mission didn't help with the military strategy, but it did help in encouraging the faith of the spies and the whole nation. This was far more important than a good battle plan. There was another purpose at work in sending the spies to save Rahab. In this, we see the extent God goes, the extent that God goes to in bringing one woman and her father's house to salvation. You may know some people that seem impossible to save, but God's hand is not too short or too weak to save people like Rahab, and he can work in amazing ways to bring salvation. God doesn't overlook anyone. God doesn't overlook you. He doesn't overlook the lowliest person who has desire to be in relationship with him. And he has gone to great lengths to ensure that they are saved, that God would interrupt the flow in order to find that person who wants to be in relationship with him. That he would interrupt the outworking of the promise of Israel that was being worked out over generations to spare Rahab and her family. And not only to just spare them from destruction, but to actually include her in the lineage of the Messiah. And it shows God's desire for all to be saved. That there's not just a saving, but there's also an inclusion that happens when we believe in him. Because God takes great pride in using the least and the last for his purpose. But he also takes great pride in showing that the last shall be first and the first shall be last in this upside down kingdom of God. And that changes the way that we see those who we consider last in our world. Because this story is actually an archetype for Jesus's story. 
that Jesus came from uh, Nazareth, a lowly place. There was a, a saying in the ancient world that says, uh, can anything good come from Nazareth? He was born to lowly people in a kind of controversial moment. He was rejected and scorned by the very people that he came to save. That he would willingly be betrayed by those people and sent to his death and he would be willing to go to the greatest length in order to include us in his eternal family. Because friends, what this picture shows is that Rahab's story points so beautifully to the final act of our savior to bring us into relationship with him. And we see that Jericho in, in Rahab's story is indeed destroyed in the coming chapters. But we see that Rahab kept her word and consequently was saved alongside her family. And she's not only saved from the horrible abuse that she endured, the past that I'm sure she'd like to leave behind, but she was also included in the family of God and most importantly in the lineage of Jesus. Do we include those who are exploring faith in Jesus in the same way? Are we willing to create a sense of home for them in the family of God? Do we say to them, welcome home when they come to faith in Jesus and mean it and create ways for that to happen? Because this is the great act of hospitality shown to those who are exploring faith and to those who are journeying in faith, that if God would include and integrate Rahab into his perfect purpose, that he can include you as well but also that we too should be people who invite others into our family of faith and into the family of God as well. Because your past doesn't exclude you from being welcomed home. We have all lived in darkness and we all need a place to belong before we believe. And so are we people who create those spaces of belonging? Well, to conclude, I wanna share with you an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It says, you have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk that he'd had that morning. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. Well, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story, but in case you're not, uh, or in case it's been a while perhaps, um, Edmund was won over by the white witch. He, was be he, he betrayed his family. He betrayed Aslan as well, the, the symbol and the story of Jesus. And Aslan, as a result of, his, of Edmund's betrayal, was slain. But then he rose again as the internal winter began to flourish into spring. And the witch tries her very best to throw Edmund's past in his face as a way of excluding him. But instead, Aslan chose to restore him. Aslan had that moment of restoration in a tent with him. And as Edmund looks upon the face of Aslan, he knows that his future is not dictated by his past, by his betrayal, by his lack of faith, because God takes great pride in using the last and the least to accomplish his purposes. And Rahab's story reminds us just like Edmund's does, that so far gone is never too far gone for God. That if you feel overlooked, that if you feel or are marginalized, or for instance, that your past is too great for God's grace, well, Rahab's story reminds us that all it takes to be saved from that past is an imperfect step of faith, is the declaration of belief in Jesus, 
And it also reminds us that everybody should read that sign in our lobby that says welcome home and believe in their heart and in their mind that it is true. That no matter their lifestyle, their choices, their past, or even their present, that this should be a place of home for all who come. Because it may just be that God will use that person to accomplish things for his kingdom in this world if we let him. Friends, let's pray. Well, God, we thank you that you would include us. We thank you, God, that you would partner with us and allow us to partner with you in your great and perfect plan for your kingdom. Because God, we are all those who shouldn't be worthy of that. And yet God, by your grace and your mercy and your love, you used us who are last and least in order to accomplish that, in order to partner with you in that. And so God, we thank you for that. God, I pray that we would be people who celebrate imperfect steps of faith and walk with people as we journey in faith together by creating a sense of belonging, a place of comfort, a place of safety, because God, you are our safe place, because you are the one who's included us in your great plan, because you are one who uses anybody with a past as long as we live in faith in you. So God, I pray that we'd be people of faith, and I pray that we'd be people that include others in your family so that they can belong and believe. God, we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for joining us.